Welcome to A Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, a podcast about geek culture by lawyers with your hosts, Ben Siders and Kurt Damon. And welcome back to A Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, the podcast that asks interesting questions that don't have any answers with your hosts, Ben Siders, that's me, and the other guy is Kirk Damon. That's Kirk, how's the cap for the Enterprise? We are intellectual property lawyers and certified geeks practicing law in St. Louis, Missouri. You can find me, Ben, on Twitter at Benjamin Siders. You can find Kirk at KirkDMN, and you can find this podcast at LGGPod. Uh, or maybe it's LGG Podcast. One of the two. You'll find us. Uh, <laughs> our website has unfortunately disappeared. Uh, yes. we'll, we'll get into that in a second. But uh, the important thing is that we're back after a lengthy absence. Not that we didn't record things. We just recorded things that we couldn't put out for various reasons. <laughs> yeah, or didn't want to. Or didn't and, want and sort to. of various things along those lines. So, you know, one of them didn't sound that good. Uh, but yeah, I think the real thing is we're trying to be back. We want to try to put some content out. We have, I think, both in our independent travels here bumped into fans recently, and we yes. definitely want to appease you guys. Yes. Yeah, so uh, uh, let me start off with a little shout-out to the Oklahoma Bar Association. They invited me down uh, to give a little talk about uh, what we're going to talk about today, fair use. Uh, and so thank you, uh, Liz, for inviting me down. I had a, a good time there. And then this is uh, today's the first day I've seen Kirk since April. Yes, I have been gone for a month, uh, not you know, partially on vacation and then partially thanks to uh, screwed-up airline transits. <laughs> Yeah, Kirk emailed me about a week ago, and he's like, I'm stuck in Milan. And before I <laughs> even uh, remarked that the word stuck deserves sarcasm quotes there, he's like, yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> but the issue with it was I was truly stuck, uh, thanks to both an airline strike and then a broken engine on the plane, uh, which was trained to me repeatedly. We were, I really commented when we got back, you have one of those, you know, you're, it's amazing how much you want to be back on American soil where you can at least look at a, at a sign and understand the language that it's in. That, that again. Um, so. So today we're going to talk about, uh, so the Supreme Court ruled in the Andy Warhol case that we talked about last year. We uh, threatened in that episode to discuss this further uh, once the case came down. <laughs> Which we did. And it now has, and so we're going to talk about it. Uh, so if you don't know the facts of that case, we're not going to rehash them here. I will put a link in the show notes back to that episode. You can familiarize yourself with it. For for present purposes, what you really need to know is that the court ruled that, what, Kirk? The Warhol rule? <laughs> the Warhol rule is done. Oh, the Warhol rule has died. <laughs> It's very sad. So because you are Andy Warhol, it is transformative fair use is no longer the rule. Um, they ruled on behalf of Goldsmith, the original photographer of Prince uh, in this case. Um, so, yeah, we, we have Andy decision. Warhol losing. Yes, yeah, split decision. We have a, a six-justice majority yeah. with uh, Mr. Justice Gorsuch uh, concurring. And then a, I think a two-justice minority with, um, was it Sotomayor or Kagan on the other side? I truly can't remember. I can't remember now. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I think it was Kagan it. and Roberts were on uh, the, the dissent. So I love the IP cases because when it's split, there's no political allegiance at yes. all. You get weird configurations of justices, and that's what we've got here, which are always delightful. Yeah, well, one of the things the IP cases are really useful for is they actually show you where the justices fall on sort of legal topics. Yeah. Because there's really no political grounds in them. And this one in particular... Yeah, I mean, um, fair, fair use is perhaps one of the most apolitical issues there there is, and it, it often just boils down to kind of a gut check on how the justices feel yeah. about it. Uh, and this one, I mean, there's there's reasoning on both sides. The the dissent is is perhaps unusually vitriolic, maybe you'd say, for a for a Supreme Court opinion. Uh, but I, you know, let's just get into it. You know. Um, Warhol lost. Uh, the The sole issue before the court here was transformativeness. Um, and that's an important thing to keep in mind we want to talk about with this. We didn't necessarily get into it in our last episode, but we've, we've noticed in commentary afterward, like people commentating about this, there's a lot of discussions of things like freedom of speech and artistic freedom. Yes. These were not things in front of the court. 
Yeah. The court here was looking at a very specific area of copyright law and one specific test under copyright law, which is normal for Supreme Court cases. Yeah. They tend to take these very you know narrow legal views. But it's important because of the fact that a lot of when people are saying what the implications of this case are have nothing to do with the actual decision and what the court said. Yeah, we, say, we should say that up front. These, there, there tends to be a very significant, I'm going to call it an overreaction, by both the legal community and the lay community to a case like this. Fair use cases famously tell us nothing about fair use. Uh, not just at the Supreme Court level, but but throughout um, uh, the, the circuits. The Second Circuit and the Ninth Circuit issue a lot of these cases. Um, other circuits cite to them a lot. But the predictive value of, of, of any fair use appellate decision, I would say, is generally limited. Uh, unless you have facts that are really, really, really similar, yeah. you often can't glean much from these that's generally applicable to other cases. And again, I think it's fall back, and I believe I mentioned this at the end of our last you know, Warhol episode when we were talking about this. One of the things to me in this case is there is no right answer here. There was no clear area where you can say this is or is not copyright infringement. There were arguments on both sides. You also, and we were talking about this earlier with, I was talking about this earlier with Ben. One of the things I think that was interesting about this case, and I think part of the reason the Supreme Court took it, is because you don't have disparate sides. You have two artists against each other, both of who are established, recognized artists against each other. It's not where we have somebody who's a world famous artist and a nobody. Yeah. You know, we have two people who are both substantial. Or like an artist that's like at war with a content platform or something yeah. like that. You have direct uh, artist on artist violence here. Yeah, and, <laughs> and I think that that's very important because a lot of what you had is this is bad for for artists, and the answer to it is is. Which artists are we talking about? It's good for one of the artists. It's bad for one of the artists. Saying it's good or bad for artists, you know, plural, doesn't really make any sense. Um, and so, you know, those are one of the things that I think is important to keep in mind with this. And what I think we want to try to do in discussion with this is a lot of the commentary on this, in my mind, has just been very reactive yeah. and very much of the, I think it should have gone the other way. And so, therefore, it's wrong. And look at all the reasons it's wrong. Had it have gone the other way, there would have been another group of people jumping out yeah. there and saying, this is wrong because it wouldn't agree with I This is going to be the death of art. The exact same arguments would yes. have been made. This is the death of art as we know it. Nobody's <laughs> ever going to make anything ever again yeah. because it's just going to get stolen. Instead of that, it's no one's going to make anything ever again because they're just going to get sued. Dude. It's the exact same problem. Yeah. And, so, and, and I think that's important. And that's kind of where I want to start the discussion around this is – we can't look at this and say this is the death of art. We have to look at this and say this is copyright law. They said the same thing after Aka Froze. There was all this commentary <laughs> about how, oh, he said, all you got to do is say it's a parody. Now anybody can rip off anything. Uh, and, and, and yet, inexplicably, the music industry uh, trotted onward. You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's doing very well. Um, or at least reasonably well in the last few years. Yeah. <laughs> there's, a, there's a Napster problem. We won't. That's a separate <laughs> issue. That Napster was definitely not a fair use. Um, let's go through the fair use factors real quick. For those of you who don't don't know these offhand, there's four factors defined in the Copyright Act that courts are supposed to look at when determining whether something is a fair use or not. Um, they come from an original formulation put down by uh, Mr. Justice Story in the early 1900s, maybe yeah, a long this, time this ago. A long time ago. Uh, I think it involved the publication of uh, General Washington's memoirs or something like that. <laughs> I don't remember. I've never read the case to be honest. Um, but uh, he, he laid out three factors to which uh, Congress added a fourth in the 1976 Act, and they're all there in the statute. We'll go over them. But they're 
I'm just gonna say they're they're not terribly illuminating. Um, they give you some general guidelines, but when you look into the case law, no one factor is dispositive. It's it's not a situation where you just go through each one of the four and say for or against, yeah. and then total up which one ha- wins. Like it doesn't work that way. You can have three factors go against, one factor go in favor, but if in that particular case under those particular facts, that's the most important factor, it can outweigh the other yeah. three. So it's it's uh, we got a quote here in this. Uh, Kirk and I are looking at a presentation that I, my Oklahoma Bar Association presentation I just did, um, I pulled out a quote from a court. They described fair use as uh, a doctrine that is so flexible as virtually to defy definition. <laughs> and I would, I argued to, to Oklahoma, I'm going to argue now, that that's a feature, not a bug. Um, <laughs> and you, I, I, I don't know if this is true or not, but I have kind of a working theory that we should say the fair use doctrine doesn't really live in other countries the way it does here. Most countries either don't have fair use at all, or if they do, it is extremely circumscribed and limited, and the statute yeah. very well defines it. We're the weirdos, as usual, in the U.S., that have this largely unhelpful statutory framework under which sometimes you can do things and sometimes you can't. Nobody knows when. Uh, Is it a coincidence that American creative works have become uh, very uh, prominent globally? When you have this this yeah. flexible fair use doctrine that allows a lot more to be done. Yeah. Well, I think some of it, quite frankly, as well. And I mean, as much as I'm going to say the two things are completely different, we do have the First Amendment to the Constitution yeah. and the idea that we look at it and say we want people to be speaking, which is in some sense a unique American invention. It definitely was when we wrote it. Um, but it's one of those things where I think when you get into fair use of the copyright, we have this feeling that there needs to be an exception. Yeah. And that exception needs to be statutory. But at the same time, that exception can't be rigid. Um, yeah. It can't just be these things are okay and these things are not. And it can't be so broad that it swallows the rule, right? Although yeah. this is ultimately in service of the Constitution to promote the progress of science and arts. That's what we're here yeah. for. And so that's what fair use basically boils down to is, is the, your, the use you're making furthering what the Constitution says we have a copyright for? If it is, it's more likely to be okay. Not guaranteed, but more likely. Uh, and if it's not, then, uh, well, you're... You're in the crosshairs. Yeah. And, and the other thing with it is, and again, I just kind of coming back to it, we have to keep in mind, this is copyright law. Copyright law is saying you can't make copies. That's what the copyright law says. It's illegal to make copies. You know, it's a violation of copyright law to make copies mm-hmm. without authorization. Yeah. Every one of the rights ultimately boils down to, did you make a copy did or you not? Make a copy no matter or which one you infringe, allegedly infringe, that's going to be part of the analysis. Yeah. And we get the substantial similarities where you look and say, how close is it? Yeah. And again, that's one of the things I think that the court, the reason the court took this case, in my mind in looking at this, he unquestionably made a copy. Yeah, that's impossible to deny. It, it's really impossible to deny, which means we are solely in fair use. This is one of those cases where there's no other argument but fair use. And really the argument in here has to be transformative fair use because we have two artists against each other. Yeah. And, and again, that's I, I keep falling back on that. I keep mentioning it because I think it's really important to point out the fact that this case has very unique facts yeah. compared to a lot of fair use. So cases. look at the last one was Google v. Oracle, not artists. It was yeah. two, two giant companies duking it out. Before that, uh, Orbison versus, it was Aka Froze, really, but Roy Orbison's publisher versus Two Live Crew. Yeah. So you had a music publisher, a big organization versus artists. And what'd you have before that? The, the VCR case? It was Sony, yeah. Sony case. So we don't get a lot of these. Yeah. And, and that's the thing with this is it's, it's important for that reason. And it's, a, and again, I think that's part of the reason the court took this case. And we should say two artists that do the same kind of thing. Yeah. Goldsmith was a, wasn't is a renowned celebrity photographer. Like when you needed professional photography done of famous people, that's who you called in the seventies and eighties. Yeah. Uh, and then we have Andy Warhol, of course, speaks for himself. His reputation precedes him. Yeah. And you know, so you'll have heard of Goldsmith, but you, I, suspect you've probably seen their work. I mean, that's, oh, yeah. the, you know, yeah, for sure. 
Um, and so, yeah, it's this is that's the thing with the important of this case. And so when we're really getting into this, we're getting into these transformative fair use factors. We're really getting into a case that has weighing. Mm-hmm. We are trying to look at it and say we have a scale. We're going to stick some weights on both sides of the scale. Which way is that scale going to tip? And do we want to put our thumb on it and say it needs to go the other direction? Yeah. We should, and that's what this case is. We should mention at, at, at trial, Warhol won. They found it was a fair use because they said it was transformative. It went up to the Second Circuit uh, and they reversed. And I think some of the language in that opinion is why this went to the Supreme Court in the first place. Because talking to other IP lawyers, a lot of people have been like, why, why did this one get picked up of all the cases because they affirmed the second circuit. Did it really need the Supreme court to also say, yeah, what they said is basically right. Yeah. Uh, but one of the reasons may be what you said. It's an unusual fact pattern. Uh, and there was some language in the second circuit decision that was, was maybe overstated what the rules were. Um, but what's, what's interesting is that both the second circuit and the Supreme court tried to avoid getting into subjective assessments of the artistic merit of the two works. And that really is the huge thing here. And I think that's what people bump into. And it's, that's our joke with the Warhol rule that we made repeatedly in conjunction with this is it's easy to say Warhol has artistic merit because everybody agrees. It's a Warhol. It's a Warhol. But you also look at it and say Goldsmith also has artistic merit. Um, and otherwise, why did Andy want to use her photos? Why not just use anybody's photos? Yeah. And, and so it's those type of things where it's, we have to get away from that artistic merit. And I think it's all too easy for commentators that don't necessarily, are not used to looking at the IP law cases, yeah. to look at it and say, but there's artistic merit. And the answer to it is, is we've got to not think about that. Yeah. And it's very, very hard to not think about that. Because it's Andy Warhol. <laughs> well, it's also important with the Supreme Court in case in particular. You know, these cases get appealed to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court's not going to go back and Monday morning quarterback every last thing that happened. You have to write what the question of law is yeah. that you want them to address. And in this case, uh, the Warhol Foundation, it was a very narrow question. Did the Second Circuit err in finding that his work was not transformative? That he thought, or I should say his foundation thought, that the analytical framework that the Second Circuit used used to conclude that it's not transformative was wrong. They didn't use the right law, and that was the sole issue up on appeal. So when I read these articles saying, why didn't they talk about First Amendment? Well, that wasn't part of the petition for cert, so why would they talk about it? It would be inappropriate to do that. On the flip side, the decision kind of punts some of this back to factor four. We should talk about the factors. I keep threatening to do that, not doing it. <laughs> Let's go through them real quick. So factor one of the four fair use factors is the purpose and character of the use, uh, and uh, including whether it's commercial or, or for nonprofit educational purposes. We often say um, that's kind of a, a weird false dichotomy because um, – uh, educational purposes can be profitable. <laughs> yeah. And, and, uh, not necessarily non-commercial, but, um, the, over time, especially after, uh, the Campbell versus Acuff Rose case, that's the two live crew case. We did a, an episode on that too. Over time, there's been a sort of, I would say, um, perhaps overly fixated emphasis on the transformativeness of the use. And I always, I think a lot of lawyers struggle with this. We say transformative use. Are we talking about, did you transform the original work into a new work? Like you made a lot of changes to it? Or are you saying the way that you use the new work is a transformative purpose? Yep. And it really involves both. And the Campbell Soup Warhol can, uh, is, I'm just 
me say that again. The Warhol Campbell soup can is a good example of that. The the new work is not transformative at all. It's identical. But the use of it is highly transformative. The soup can label is just a convey a, a commercial message, yeah. here be soup, versus uh, Warhol is to kind of make fun of that and remark on it. Well, and I think if you get into people like found art artisans, yeah. now you're really talking, that's the idea. Is it's saying, no, this is a completely utilitarian thing, but I have turned it into art by saying it is art. You know, and so, okay, that's a completely different purpose, even though the work is not transformed at all. Yeah, it's literally thing. identical thing. So, you know, you get into those types of questions. So the second factor is the nature of the copyrighted work. It's it's axiomatic amongst copyright lawyers that this almost never plays a meaningful role. Yeah. We do see cases where it becomes more important, but if, if you look at fair use cases, there's very little correlation between this and the outcomes. And we see cases like Google v. Oracle where, where the court says, uh, you know, it's software, it's technology, it should have kind of a thin copyright. And then you see cases like basically everything else where they say it's a creative work that's entitled to the maximum amount of copyright protection. Nevertheless, it's fair use for whether it's no matter how much protection <laughs> yeah. it gets. So. Well, and I think the thing with the nature of the copyrighted work in some sense is we're getting these things that say, do you have a really thin copyright or do you have a, a stand, sort of standard copyright, for lack of a better term? I think you'd say there's a thick copyright. I think you're yeah. either standard or you're thin. But what you really, where you're going to see that play into in some sense is that it's going to play into the purpose and character of the use because it's, well, what's the use of the underlying yeah. work? You know, if it's software, well, it has the utilitarian function. So did you alter its function? Did you alter, you know, is it aesthetic and things like that? Whereas, and, and I know when a lot of people talk about this, and I've even done it in conjunction with presentations when I do, Article 2 oftentimes, right, and two oftentimes just gets thrown into something else. Yeah. It ends up influencing something else. It's not really its own statutory factor. I think there's an argument you could make that this should get more prominence. I, Kirk and I were talking earlier about how I've, I'm kind of developing a, a, a theory of copyright where um, this should be more prominent in that where the vocabulary of expression for the type of work is more limited, especially if it's limited by by nature, um, then that, that should play in here to where there's only so many ways to express yourself. Like music, for example, there's only so many tones that a human being can hear. You know, there's only so many ways to combine them and that's not jarring and offensive. So, you know, uh, particularly when you're limited by, say, Western music, you've got 12 notes to play with, okay? <laughs> there's only so much you can do, you yeah. know, uh, in, in commercial music anyway. So that, that probably deserves more prominence than it gets, but we see in, in the reality it basically falls out of the analysis and virtually never plays any meaningful role. Yeah. Uh, the third factor is the amount and substantiality of the portion used in relation to the copyrighted work as a whole. In, in practice, courts tend to tie this back to the first factor and say, did you take no more than you reasonably need for the purpose you're using it for? So now we're back to the purpose and character yeah. of the use. It kind of falls back into that. Um, so if your purpose is, you know, like I said, Andy Warhol, a Campbell soup can, well, the purpose is to, to, to mock commercialism by just displaying the soup can as like framed art, like yeah. mocking uh, consumerism. Okay, well, then he used all of it. All right? But since you need to use all of it for the purpose, that's fine. <laughs> yeah. And I think the thing you really, quite frankly, I think with the third factor, what you really get into is a lot of the stuff with things like movie reviews. What we yeah. clearly say are fair use and kind of long accepted, they fall under fair use because they fall under three. Yeah. You know, if I've got a movie review and I show a single still frame from a movie, I really haven't copied any of it. That's yeah. the reality. And so I think it's, in my mind, three exists because it made sense of what had already been found to be fair use yeah. and was unquestionably fair use, not because it really matters in the future cases, so to speak. Yeah, we see this also in other cases. I mean, there's plenty of fair use cases where they use the entire thing. It's nevertheless deemed a fair use. Yeah. But it's it's a situation where 
we're going to get to this in a second. Basically, the way you're using it, it's not a market substitute for the original. So, like, uh, the uh, the Ariba case involving uh, thumbnail images. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, it shrunk down so much that you can't use the thumbnail as a substitute for the original. So, it doesn't matter that you took all of it and used it. it it's still not a market substitute under Factor 4, so this falls out of the yeah. analysis. And that is Factor 4, is the effect of the use upon the market or potential market for the value of the copyrighted work. Yes. Uh, this is, again, axiomatic amongst copyright lawyers. This is by far the most important factor. Uh, you will even see courts say that. Everybody yeah. knows this is the most important factor uh, because it goes back to the Constitution. We're trying to promote the progress in science, mm -hmm. uh, progress of science and the arts. Uh, and so if you are basically releasing something that people are going to buy that, instead of the original, uh, well, then that's bad because then people will stop making originals. That said, there are times where the effect on the market uh, is fine. In the case of commentary, criticism, parody, if you give such a devastating critique of something that nobody wants it, that's fine. That's the kind of thing we have copyright for. Is to, yeah. that, That's advancing the progress of science and the arts as opposed to, no, I'm just ripping off your thing so I yeah. can sell it and make money myself. That's also then bumping into free speech because now it's the idea that you're saying, I'm making a commentary on your thing. Yes. I'm not copying your thing. I'm making a commentary on your thing, which may or may not, my commentary may or may not really be copyrightable. Yep. Um, but that's where you kind of get into some of these free speeches. And I think that's why free speech gets drug into this is because we look at it and say, we're affecting the market. That is affecting the market. But it's also not affecting the market in the fact that I'm making a substitute. I'm affecting the market by commentary. Yeah. And so it's one of those things that you bump into. And I remember this is one of the questions like when we talked about Napster sort of earlier. One of the questions with it is, is, well, don't I increase the market for it by increasing the, the music accessibility? Because if, you know, by hearing the song on the radio, I want to buy the album. So if I can hear the song by downloading it on my computer, wouldn't I want to buy the album? And the answer to it is, is that's a legitimate argument, except it never happened. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's one of those things where you look at it and say, yes, if that had happened, I think you would have had a legitimate argument to say, no, this is how people are listening to music now. You know, and, and that's what you bump into with things like streaming services. This is not a, a question that's been resolved. But we can bump into it, look at it and say, what does it mean to say you're altering the potential market when you have a literal copy, you know, mm -hmm. being made? And that's what these things are. So it's, I think, yeah, when you talk to attorneys universally, quite, you know, factors one and four, oftentimes said, they're the only factors that matter. And they tend to be tied together, too, which is yeah. why it's a little odd that in the Warhol case, factor four was not up on cert, but factor one was, because they kind of play into each other. Yeah. And that was basically the majority's ruling. Um, they kind of looked at, this isn't quite how it's written, but this is how I read the case, at least, and I know reasonable minds may differ here. Uh, but they kind of put this, um, I'm going to call it uh, the... I don't know, there, there's the, the way that you transformed the original work, and then there's whether the purpose of the new, the new work is transformative. So, yeah. is there, is you the new, this. yeah, is the new work transformative, and is the use of the new work transformative? And, and here they basically said those are kind of on two different axes. And if the use of the new work is basically commercial and directly competitive with the original, well, then on the other axis, it better be really, really, really different. And they just said here, it's just not that different. Not yeah. different enough. And so they upheld the Second Circuit. Yeah, and I think that's the thing with it is it's when you really look at this, you have essentially artworks, competitive artworks, similar artworks, same subject matter, used in similar ways in some respects. I mean, they're both used in magazines and yeah. sort of stuff like that. That was a, a prominent in the in the decision. I think that's something that I, I didn't pay that much attention to when the case was first going up. I just kind of looked at these two uh, images side by side, but they really emphasize that, look, Goldsmith makes a living off producing these photos and licensing them to magazines. And she's licensed a lot of them to magazines. And 
Condé Nast owned Vanity Fair. They licensed the original one. Yeah. And then the same organization licensed this one from Andy Warhol instead. It's a direct market substitute. And again, that's kind of where I jump onto the fact of why this case, this case has really interesting facts. And it's, this case is a law school exam. It is. Like, it really is. And Gorsuch drives that home where he says, the exact same orange prints that was as issue here, stick it in a museum about art, maybe that's a fair use. Which, Which goes to the point of you know, whether or not it's transformative in terms of how much it changes the original, you can overcome the fact that, according to the court, it's minimally transformative by making the use of it transformative. Put it in an art museum as opposed to in a magazine cover. Yeah. And again, that now gets to the marketing issue with it, which is a magazine cover is how artists make money. Yeah. A museum generally is not. Yep. <laughs> you know, and so it's it's those kind of things where you really get into the... Factor four is now tangled up in factor one. Yeah. Now, do we have factor two and three? I don't think we really have factor two and three even because were, none this. of those. Yeah, they weren't up on certain really an issue here. Um, you could make an argument the amount taken is not. I, I had, this is what I argued uh, in Oklahoma. You could make an argument that what was taken by Warhol here is mostly the non-copyrightable elements in the first place. The appearance of prints is not copyrightable. It's just what the man looked like. That's yeah. just a fact. You can't own that. But I think if putting on a goldsmith hat for a second, you'd argue she picked out the wardrobe, she styled his hair, she did the makeup, she did the lighting. All of those things affect what went into this photo. So how his eyes are shaded, how thick his, his goatee is, uh, the, the shading of his neckline, all of that is a function of decisions she made when she posed and positioned prints for this photo. So I think even then you have a decent argument that there's still creative elements that are there and that were taken to use this, to produce the second photo. Yeah, yeah so then you start getting in the nature of the work, you start yeah. getting into some of these other factors, and they all tie in again. Again, what we have to keep in mind is factor one is the only thing the court is looking yeah. at. What you really see is that their argument about factor one pulls in the other factors. Now, it strongly pulls in factor four. It arguably pulls in some of the other factors, too. But there's a reason for that, and that's because they're all interrelated to each other, and they can't avoid it. Um, But we're really talking about what is the purpose and nature of the work. And in this case, and to me, this is the kind of thing where I look at this case, and and again, I'll sort of do my thing. I think this case was correctly decided under copyright law. I think there's a good argument that this is a problematic way to decide it. Though I would argue that the other side way is also problematic. But it's one of those things when you look at it and you say, what is the purpose and nature of the work? There is too much similarity here. When you're looking at it at just those grounds, there is too much similarity here. There's no question it's based on the photograph. It's a literal print of the photograph. Mm -hmm. It's both of them are magazine photos. You know, both of them are the same subject matter. Like, we have the same things constantly bumping into each other. So we say, what's the purpose in use? Is there really any different? And I'm, people, I think some of the commentators have kind of attacked that comment of the, if you put it in a museum, it would be different. But I think when you look at it from that legal point of view of what is it he's saying, that would at least give it some different purpose. There is really no different purpose here. You know, whether that would be decisive or not is up in the air, but at least it gives you something to argue is different. There's nothing different here other than he changed its colors. Well, and compare that to some of the other famous fair use cases we've talked about. We've talked about the Gone with the Wind slash Wind Done Gone case. Yep. If you don't remember Gone with the Wind, famous novel by Margaret Mead. Uh, and then we've got The Wind Done Gone, written by country music songwriter Alice Randall, <laughs> another Nashville uh, staple. Uh, 
but she wrote, uh, rewrote Gone with the Wind from the point of view of Scarlett O'Hara's half-sister, um, or, uh, yeah, half-sister, I think, mm-hmm. uh, who was also uh, uh, biracial, which under the, you know, the norms of the South at the time made her a slave. Yeah. Uh, so they, she rewrote the story from, from uh, that woman's perspective, reusing basically the entire story, but the non-literal elements, right? She, she borrowed the story, the overall, um, you know, narrative themes, but, but kind of rewrote everything from scratch, and it was a book. So it's in the same market, right? In theory. Yeah. But is it a market substitute? If you want Gone with the Wind, are you buying that book instead yeah. or vice versa? Probably not. Yeah. If you want Gone with the Wind, you're buying Gone with the Wind because it's Gone with the Wind, right? Yeah. Uh, you don't just casually find Gone with the Wind in the bookstore and say, well, that sounds interesting. Either you've heard of it or you haven't. Um, so uh, I think that's part of it. But this case kind of reconciles with that. Although it's in the same market selling novels for recreational reading, uh, arguably at least, um, it was highly transformative, right? Yeah. Because it was a complete, complete rewrite of the story from scratch. Yeah, and those are the kind of things that I think you really get into with this is that part of the thing, and I think you got to keep in mind, we are talking about IP, which means the court is not as into completely overturning itself as it sometimes is in other cases. You know, they want to sort of stand on what they have. It wanted to reconcile this case with its prior stuff. And one of the things you really bump into in this is they've hung their hat on transformative a lot, that it is really transformative, that it's very different in some respect. Yeah. You know, using that, it's very different because it's a completely different novel, it's a completely different story. Yes, they're both novels, they're both books, but it's a completely different novel, it's a completely different story. This is the, it's not really a completely different artwork. Yeah. It, it's still somewhat similar, you know, in the way that, you know, it's not like he made a sculpture out of it. It's not like it's hanging in a museum. You know, I can come up with arguments to say, here's things that I can at least say it was different. Like I said, in this one, the only thing I can really say is different is he changed the color. Now, yeah. it's a, you know, it's a process and obviously, you know, yeah. I mean, there's some styling, styling in there. Yeah. You know, some of the, some of the lighting depth is different. Um, but yeah, the biggest thing is the color. Yeah. And so when you bump into it, you kind of look and say, what does this mean? You know, well, it's not, Really that transformative, is it? Um, that's kind of what the court said. And it's kind of what the court said. Eh, yeah, not much. You know. And, you know, that's when we're now getting into critiques of modern art where I can look at it and say, you know, it's a, you know, a piece of blue paper hanging on the wall. Is it really modern art? Well, I don't think it is. Now we're getting into, you know, artistic discussions and everything well, else. We but should, we should also say that that's something that we think the court was trying to avoid here. Yes. Because part of the Warhol Foundation's argument is that it was transformative because it conveys a different artistic message, even if the actual physical appearance is not that yeah. different. They argue that Goldsmith showed prints in 1981 when he was an emerging artist and he was vulnerable. Uh, and not weak, but uh, you know, a little more insecure, a little more unsure of himself because he was early in his career. Whereas the Warhol image is showing him as a, a larger than life, uh, iconic pop culture figure. Um, purple rain. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and I think the and the Second Circuit was like, look, we're we're not going to get in the business. Neither judges nor juries should get into the business of crawling inside of the you know the the supposed infringer's head and asking those questions. And really, if if that's the standard, then anybody can sit, submit a sworn affidavit that says my vision was different. Yeah. Uh, and and looking at these, I don't know enough about art to tell you whether either one of those stands for the things that Warhol says it stands for. But that was kind of the core of the question is that the Second Circuit basically disregarded that and said, okay, you can say that, a Warhol Foundation, but it still isn't that different when we look at it and it's for a competitive use, so it's not yeah. it's not transformative enough. They said that was an error and the Supreme Court kind of said, no, we're not 
we're not going to try and, and, and guess these things and, and apply artistic judgments to this stuff. That's not a task for judges. It's not a task for juries. We need to have some kind of reasonably objective standard to tether our analysis yeah. to, and here's what it's going to be. And that's my comment is where I say the I think it would have been bad for artists going the other direction because if the case would have gone the other direction, you could have exactly that. It's the argument is I have an artistic vision. Now, I can make that artistic vision up because you can't determine whether or not I really do. You can argue that my artistic vision is not good art. People have argued artistic visions are not good art for centuries, and yeah. then it's later found to be incredible art. You know, that, that's the problem you get into, is you get into this thing where we start getting into the argument which says, if I say it's art, do I escape infringement? Yeah. And the answer to it is, is that that's a terrible standard, but that's kind of what going the other direction said. Let's think about like Spaceballs, right? Like Spaceballs is clearly a spoof, right? Yes. It's a sci-fi spoof. Is it criticizing Star Wars, though? Mm-hmm. Is it really criticizing it or parodying it? Or is it more of a a, a loving embrace of the silliness of the yeah. genre? You know, I don't. I wouldn't say that's criticizing... You know, I've, I've seen criticisms of Star Wars, like the Red Letter Media guys, they have criticisms of, like, The Phantom Menace. Yeah. Uh, they did an hour-long video criticizing it. It's definitely criticism, and they use a lot of footage from the DVDs, from the movie. Spaceballs doesn't use any footage of Star Wars, but it's really on the nose. Yeah. Uh, but it's a, it's a spoof movie, right? It's, it's more satire than, uh, commentary or criticism. Uh, and a lot of these, a lot of these spoof movies are like that, where it's not really making fun of the original so much as it's, uh, it's sort of uh, an approving nod, more homage, and, and just kind yeah. of enjoying how fun and silly these things these things can yeah. be. And again, I think that's the one thing you really get into this, is it's in some sense, I think the Warhol Foundation, in arguing this case, effectively was trying to argue Warhol was a visionary, therefore anything he did was transformative. Yeah. And while I get their point... He was. Yeah, he was. I also look at it and say the problem with that argument is we can't write the law for Andy Warhol or for anybody else. Because we could very well have an artist right now who is seen, you know, whose work is seen as being terrible, as being dumb. And in a hundred years, we're all going to think it's the most transformative thing in the world. And they're the most important artist in the, the world. Great the Great Gatsby was, was not, exactly where not, I was going. <laughs> not well received in its time. And it really didn't get to be beloved until after World War II. Yeah, and after his dead. Um, and, and there's huge amounts in conjunction with art like that. I mean, you really bump into these things where we say, we don't want to be making a decision that something isn't copyright infringement because I say it's art. Yeah. And that I feel was the most important thing in the presentation of this case that Andy Warhol Foundation made. Otherwise I can just go make my own Star Wars movie. I just stick an artist statement at the front that yeah. says, here's what my vision is. It's different. It is art. Okay. And, and then now what? Yeah. Now it's not infringement? And how do you say, I'm, and then it comes in as, oh, well, but you're not a great movie maker. Oh, so now we're actually making decisions on who's yeah. a good and not artist. And so that we should. So, so if I was J.J. Abrams, then, then I get to infringe Star Wars without getting a license. Yeah, exactly. Like, uh, Even though he's the one who has the direct <laughs> marketing and then the one who's directly competitive. And you can start to see how it becomes unworkable if it starts going the other direction. And, and that's the thing I think that when I looked at this case to me, the reason I found it this way is because I really looked at it and said the alternative is we are making a statement about who is and is not a good artist. Yeah. That was really the problem with it. And again, sort of, I'm going to harp on my, why do I think they took this case? Part of the reason they took this case is because Goldsmith is a good artist. Like, we can't look at it and say there's only one artist in this. There are two. Yeah. Um, and that's why you kind of look at it and say this case has good facts from that point of view. Because we have something that says we can't say one of these artists is better than the other. 
We can say they have different visions. They have different styles. Different levels of fame and notoriety. Yep. I, I'd never heard of Goldsmith before this case. I'm sure I've seen her work before. Yeah. I'd never heard of her. I, I researched. I was like, holy cow, this person's extremely accomplished and was like a legend in her industry. Yeah. But just the nature of photography. How many famous photographers can you name? Ansel Adams. Ansel Adams. <laughs> 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 we're all going to do it. It's good. We have to do that. <laughs> but yeah, the, um, the, but that's exactly the thing with it is I think what we have is great in conjunction with this case is we look at it and say, we have two artists that have very, one is well-established and understood, one is well-established but not as well-understood. Mm-hmm. And what we really get into in conjunction with the court, and I think, again, where some of the commentators are missing it, is they're missing the fact that we have two artists. And, yeah. and we can't say this is negative to all artists because one artist without question benefited yeah. from One this. artist has to win and one artist has to, to lose. lose. Uh, and, you know, I think uh, ultimately the court looks back at what the Constitution says and, and they say, look, if this is real simple, you, you should have paid Goldsmith a little bit of money here. Yeah, that's all there is to it. How much, you know, that's up to the market to figure out. But, uh, you know, I, this is the argument I had with somebody about this uh, a couple weeks ago. Uh, you know, the, the argument was made to me, look, what what Condi Nast wanted was what what Warhol brought to this photo, not what Goldsmith brought. If they wanted what Goldsmith brought, they would have just licensed her original. Correct. But which is which is right. But then then why did Andy use this specific photo? Why did why did he get the license for one? and then go on and make 16 more. Yeah. Uh, obviously, something in this photo spoke, spoke to, to his artistic instincts. That's what Goldsmith brought to the table. If if it wasn't, then why didn't he just use any old photo yeah. or hire an undergraduate student at his local art program to go just take a photo of print somewhere and use that as yeah. a reference photo? So there's something special about this photo that spoke to him as an artist. And when that's the case, I think it makes sense. The photographer deserves some kind of compensation. Maybe it's not more than Andy should get for this. I mean, his vision is what ultimately got on the magazine cover. But that's what the court was saying. Something. And yeah. the market can figure out what that's supposed to be. Yeah, and I think that's the thing with it where you kind of look at it and say, as an artist, you were influenced by something. There's one thing to say I've been influenced by photography over the centuries. It's another thing to say I was influenced by this photograph to the extent that I copied it. Yeah. that Those are very different things. And that, and again, I think that's more what the court is saying with this is you are so, you know, what Andy Warhol brought to the table is the reason why Condé Nast chose this. But what Broadsmith brought to the table is the reason why Andy Warhol generated it in the first place. Yep. So Condé Nast wouldn't have gotten this image if it wasn't but, for Goldsmith. Yeah. So um, let me throw something else out at you. I was brainstorming with some folks about, you know, if you don't like the decision, how should this system work? Like one of the things everybody loves and hates about fair use is that it's Olympic gymnastics. It's inherently subjective <laughs> yes. with a bunch of different people looking at it and evaluating things differently, which is what makes these cases fun to talk about. Because there's never a right answer. No matter what the answer was here, it was right. Right. Yeah, but by the right. definition of our legal system, it's fine. Uh, so what, but, uh, how do you add predictability here? And one of the ideas that I've seen kicked around is what if you introduce to, um, basically any published work, the same type of compulsory license system we use for music. So with music, once you've, once you've released a song to the public, anybody can go get a license to make their own cover of it. Now, the cover can only vary so much. You can't make like an entirely different style or song out of it, but there is still a lot of latitude you get there. And this has all been incorporated into the law. It's been there for a hundred years now, more than that, 115 years. Uh, and it works pretty well and it gives artists some compensation if people use their stuff. Could you implement a compulsory licensing system for basically anything that has been published to where somebody can go to the copyright office or whoever, uh, and submit a notice that they want to use it? And then we have a, basically a, a rate court type system yeah. like we do for music to figure out who gets how much for what's being used. I think our one problem with it, I think it's good. I mean, I think it would be a great way to do it. The one problem I think you bump into with it is you start saying, well, it's literary work. 
well, is the contract I wrote a literary work? Because mm-hmm. it is under the contract, the copyright law. But how do we deal with that being a you know mandatory license type of thing? Yep. You end up with sort of saying there's a level to it. The advantage of music is music has a certain level of what it just simply is. It's a little more definable and identifiable. Yeah. <laughs> and you're still going to have problems where people don't take the compulsory license because they think what they're going to do. We should mention this too. You know, this uh, the, the transformative fair use test, um, this is a derivative work problem. And the, the transformativeness test is not actually anywhere in the statute. We read what it says. It doesn't say anything about transformativeness in factor one. You know where they do mention transformativeness? is in the derivative <laughs> use right, which belongs exclusively to the copyright, copyright holder. Novel. So we got the Copyright Act says that only the copyright owner gets to decide who can make derivative works, such as works that transform the original. Then we've got this transformative fair use test that says, but then anybody who makes a transformative work, it's a fair use. No. And so that's part of uh, what the majority pushed back on is saying, look, there has to be a line here and when in doubt we kind of need to err on the side of derivative work because that's what the law actually says yeah yeah we kind of want to err on the grounds of copyright holder and again that's where you know when people jump up here and they're saying this is bad for artists we're erring on the side of the copyright holder here yeah you know artists are benefited by their copyrights now yes you can argue you know hey it's the music studios it's the it's the large thing why that's an inherent you know capitalist problem if you want to you know argue about that that has nothing to do with the law the law basically says in conjunction with this we need the artist to hold their copyright because otherwise they have no incentive to generate the work. Yep. And, you know, because that way they're compensated for it if somebody else takes it and tries to do something with it. And, yeah, you kind of bump into that then practical reality if that's kind of what they did here. Yeah. And if you have a compulsory licensing system, someone will just not take the license because they think they don't need it because their yeah. work is sufficiently transformative that it's a fair use or it's it's not even an infringement. We're so far away from the original that uh, it's not even remotely close. Um, and then you, you're going to get these lawsuits anyway. So even that doesn't fully solve the problem. Yeah. Although it would give you probably uh, a more reasonable measure of damages. Although in this case, I think I want to say the license fee was like $10,000. How many millions do you think were yeah. spent on this lawsuit? Well, and again, some of that I think was, quite frankly, artist versus artist. Yeah. I, I mean, and again, I, I keep kind of jumping back to that. Is that to me, that is, in many respects, to me, that is one of the most important facts of this case, is the fact that we actually have artist versus artist, as opposed to artist versus corporation, as opposed to, you know, you know things like that, as opposed to artist versus unknown, un, you know, yep. unheralded person. You know, stuff like that. And it's not to say that, like, the corporation always wins or loses the case that they're involved with. But it's one of those things that I think oftentimes does play in. Yeah. That people look at it and they say, wait, the corporation has a lot of money into this. And that's – when you kind of get into that, that what's the competitive nature of the work, the more money you have in the work, the more likely you are to take some of the market for it. Yeah. Um, and so you kind of get into that with the fair use standard already – this is a great one because we have artists, we have both artists doing commercial works for similar things, which makes it such an interesting fact. As I said, this is a law school exam case. Like if you were going to write a law school exam case. It's a good one. Unfair use, this is a good one. And to me, that's part of the reason they took it is because they really did want to clarify what is transformative fair use. And they did it in a case where they could. The problem with it was is they also did it in a case where it's going to harm artists regardless. Now, arguably already had, because the Second Circuit was already law, but it, they, had to, they had to harm somebody in conjunction with this, and they chose to do it in a way that basically said, look, this is what the copyright law is. You should have taken a license here. And we also have, in this case, commercial facts that said you could have. Yeah. And I also think that's a fact that influences them, especially they may not talk about it, 
is the fact that this was not something where he didn't think he needed the license period and a story and just did it. He apparently thought he did because he got one. Yeah, in the first place. <laughs> in the first place. And so why are you doing this? It, 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 it smells of hubris, so to speak. It, you know, in conjunction with it, it's you didn't do it because you knew it was great art and you thought you could get away with it. Whether or not that's true, whether or not that ever played into it, you know, it's what it is. But it does kind of objectively from the outside, you kind of look at it and say, eh, maybe it did. Um, and again, I think that's an important sort of fact that, that played into the court here and where they went with it. Definitely. Let's talk about what we're doing next. It's been a while, and we never did get the in-camera um, branch <laughs> off the ground. Uh, that's in part because Kirk and I have not seen all the same shows at the same time. Uh, but I think we've gotten that now. So uh, we're going to get the in-camera version of the podcast ramped up. There's also some logistical problems there. I learned, by the way, breaking news, we have to have two SoundCloud subscriptions for each podcast. You can't run <laughs> two podcasts off one. So i got to get a second subscription set up there to host that stuff. We'll get all that done, but that's just one of the little uh, inside baseball things that's kind of holding us up here. Uh, but uh, Kirk has seen The Last of Us, the TV series. <laughs> so I, I binged watch The Last of Us flying to and from Europe uh, in the course of doing this. I made it through five and a half episodes on the way there and all the rest of them on the way back. We have spoken about this not at all, and Kirk is practically bouncing on his heels <laughs> wanting to talk about it. So we're going to probably have that be our inaugural in-camera episode. We'll talk about that. We've also both seen Bad Batch Season 2. We're getting into Visions. And have you seen the rest of Mandalorian Season 3 I've not seen Mandalorian Season 3 because we keep trying to figure out which of my family wants to watch it and doesn't want to watch it or doesn't care to watch it. Um, at some point, I'm just going to watch it. <laughs> yeah. um, we got that. We've got Stranger Things Season 1 you finally seen. So we've we got a lot we're going to talk about. So we'll get those going uh, in a separate stream. And once that stream is live, we will announce it. Uh, even if it's just like a one-minute you know, one minute episode of me saying so, we yeah. will release it on this stream so you know where to find it. So uh, when that's ready, uh, you will know. Yep, so it sounds good. All right, I think that's all we got for this time. We'll see you next time. Lauren, play us out. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by Lewis Rice LLC, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. This podcast was produced and recorded in St. Louis, Missouri. 